0: Lord, we thank you that you let nothing stand in between us and your love for us, even death on a cross. As we remember Palm Sunday, we begin this holy week. Lord, may that be ever before us as we continue our journey towards Easter. In Jesus' name, amen. So how did we get here? That's the feeling I'm always left with each Palm Sunday, right? We started the morning in such a different state, welcoming Jesus with these jubilant shouts of Hosanna, right? Which means, save us now. And now we have Jesus taken off the cross, dead in a tomb. We've been using the metaphor of a journey to describe Lent in the verses of this Passion reading, they remind us that this journey continues to the foot of the cross. There's not really a way to add a lighthearted story after that drama that's unfolded that I think wouldn't sound trite or maybe even take away from the gravity of what we've heard. So I'll depart from my normal sermon introductions and just jump right in. The great biblical scholar Martin Collar once described the four Gospels as passion narratives with extended introductions. And that's the biggest thing that they all have in common. They have very, very detailed descriptions of the events that led to Jesus' death. John's Gospel doesn't even tell us how Jesus was born, yet he has a multi-chapter description of how he died. This is the only Sunday in the liturgical year, that we read about Jesus' crucifixion. Yes, on Good Friday, we will again go to Calvary. But I'm talking about Sunday worship. Let that sink in a little bit. This is the only time every year that on a Sunday, we read through the whole of the Passion narrative. It's a reminder to me that Palm Sunday doesn't stand on its own but it's the beginning of something far bigger. It's the beginning of Holy Week, right? We can't just capture Palm Sunday in and of itself, right? It, it won't make sense. We've got to see where that story is leading us. It's also impossible to preach on the whole of Luke's telling of the Passion narrative, so I want to focus in on a Couple unique details in Luke's telling in his gospel surrounding Jesus' death. So I began this morning by asking the question how did we get here? And what's interesting is Jesus actually gives us a really clear answer in Luke's gospel for the events that we have seen unfold before us. Right towards the beginning of what we read, after he had been betrayed by Judas and he's being arrested and handed over. Jesus challenges his opponents, right? What does Jesus say? Well, at the end of verse 52 and verse 53 in chapter 22, this is what he says. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs, right? He's calling into question the manner in which they're trying to capture Jesus, right? They're they're coming at him like he's a dangerous criminal, but clearly he's not. And Jesus continues and he says this, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Only in Luke's gospel does Jesus mention that last line. This is your hour and the power of darkness. The other gospels have a similar telling from Jesus, but how they end is they say that Jesus did this so he, Jesus says, this is so the scriptures will be fulfilled. And the scriptures are fulfilled. But I think it's really interesting that Luke's account of what Jesus said keys in on this idea of the power of darkness. Luke is helping us to see why the scriptures must be fulfilled. The scriptures must be fulfilled in this gruesome, terrible way because of the power of darkness. We've gotten to this place of Jesus having to die because of the dark power of sin in the world. Now, when we are talking about sin, I want to be clear that this is more than just the wrong things that you or I have done. There's a popular way of defining sin where we look at the etymology of the word that's used in the Bible to describe sin— a And when we translate that as sin, the, the description that often gets used is this idea, right, of missing the mark. Have some of you heard that before? Even the word picture that comes with this idea of missing the mark, it's, it's a, of an archer, right, and a misguided shot, right? They've missed the mark. They haven't hit what they've tried to attain, And I think that we minimize the impact of sin if we think about this missing of the mark, this concept, purely as an individual. Yes, Jesus absolutely died for the times where I haven't been truthful, where I've broken the speed limit, right? Maybe when I've spoken ill of others. Every single one of those times I've missed the mark, Jesus has died for that sin. But those things in and of themselves, right, the things that I do wrong that miss the mark, the things that you may do wrong that miss the mark, they're actually symptoms of something bigger, much larger. Sin at its core, it's not missing the mark in terms of our own morality alone. But it's a larger missing of the mark in terms of the way that God created humanity to function and live in the world, right? That's where it's this bigger thing. That's where it's not just the individual sins that we do that Jesus dies for, right? He dies for all the ways we as a humanity, right? And collectively, those individual sins, right, they become a lot worse. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates humanity in his own image. And the reason that God creates humanity in his image is that God always intended to relate with with us humans, right? He created us in his own image so that we might properly relate to God and then reflect God's goodness back into the world through our actions, right? That's why God created people. We were always made to be in relationship with God. But by Genesis 3, things have gone awry, right? Adam and Eve, they sin because they don't trust that God is who he says he is, right? They don't trust God's provision in their lives. And thus, in their sin, right, the relationship between them and God, between them and one another, between them and the world that God created, right? Even within themselves, these relationships, right? The intention that God has made for creation, it's disrupted at every level. And if you've been tracking this passion narrative, right? If you were listening to the different accounts in place, we see this playing out both individually, right? You can see definite moments of individual sin in this passage, but I'm also struck by the collective nature of the wrongdoings that are happening, right? Both, both Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial, they're clear examples of individual wrong. Those who beat and mock Jesus, right? Clear examples of individual wrong how Pilate gives into the crowd. But on a larger scale, you can see the sin, right, of all the Jewish elites who have hatched this big plot to take out Jesus and have no problem, right, cozying up to Rome. Did you catch that little detail where it talks about how Herod and Pilate hadn't really gotten along? But, right, taking down Jesus was the way that they became more friendly with Right? So you have these bigger things that are happening that goes beyond just the sin of one person right? or, an individ- or an individual act. This is both an individual and a collective abandonment of God's intention for humanity. Right? We're seeing how this continues to play out in our world today, right? The war crimes that are happening in Ukraine, right? If you look it up, there are all kinds of terrible stories that are out there about the things that Russian soldiers are doing to innocent people in Ukraine. I don't need to spare you those details, right? You can look them up. They're out there. And we see it in ourselves, right? How are we invited to enter into this passion narrative? We say crucify. Crucify him, right? We are not exempt. This isn't a us and a them thing, right? Those who have killed Jesus, it's not them out there, right? We are part of this whole story of the collective sin, of this abandoning of God's way. Yet in spite of all of this, God has not abandoned his people. God promised to work through Abraham's descendants to one day save the whole world. And the culmination of that promise is Jesus, right? A descendant of Abraham in the people of Israel, even though Israel failed time and time and time again to collectively live up to this call in which God created humanity for. So what does God do? God sends his own son to be the Messiah, right? The savior of his people because of his great love for them. In sending his son to be incarnate in the flesh, Jesus is bringing a new way of relating with God, of living into his image. And what does that get Jesus? Well, we know, right? It gets Jesus killed not on account of anything wrong that Jesus has done, right? Luke is very, very clear to show that Jesus has done nothing wrong. Jesus is showing us exactly what it means to be a human and live out this plan that God had always intended for his humanity. Yet it ends with his death. You see this so clearly in the exchange that happens, right, between Jesus and Barabbas, right? Again, these are little details that Luke includes that aren't in other Gospels, right? In other Gospels, Barabbas is a notorious criminal. But in Luke's Gospel, it's really clear what, what, those, what those crimes were. He's, he's a terrorist, essentially. He's a political insurrectionist. He's a murderer. And what's really interesting is in, in the Roman world, Crucifixion wasn't just a common way of death. It was the type of death that was reserved for the worst criminals, generally those who opposed Rome and were acting in treasonous ways. So do we see what's happening here? On the one hand, there's Jesus, right? And Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. And on the one hand, there's Barabbas, right? This terrible criminal and what happens they swap places right jesus dies the death that barabbas deserved to die in, a, in 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 on a bigger scale right jesus dies the death that all of rebellious israel and all of rebellious humanity before god deserves to die another significant and unique thing that Luke says in his gospel. He has a word from the cross from Jesus, forgive them for they know not what they do. One of the things when I first became an Anglican that was particularly compelling to me was in our act of confession, how we confess not only the things that we've done, right, the wrongs that we've done, but we also have an invitation to confess the things that we have not done. To me, that was a powerful thing. It was a reminder that it's not just the wrong things that I'm conscious of I'm doing that can be sinful before God, right? There's things that I don't do. There's things that I maybe don't even realize that I'm doing that are sinful, that are out of step with the way that God wants to work. Fleming Rutledge, who's a Amazing preacher, maybe one of the best preachers that we currently have alive today, has written a, a giant book on the crucifixion. And in looking through it and, and, and preparing for my sermon today, I was really struck by this quote that she writes. Were it not for the mercy of God surrounding us, we would have no perspective from which to view sin, for we would be entirely subject to it. This is the reason for affirming that whenever sin is unmasked and confessed, God's redemptive power is already present and acting. And that's where, how we've gotten to where we are. It's a terrible thing to look upon this cross. But in the cross, right, this, in this mysterious way that we don't understand, that we see Paul attempting to explain Just a little bit in Philippians chapter 2, right? The cross is God's answer to the horrors of the world, to the power of sin and darkness, to the wrongs that we do, the ways that we miss the mark, both individually and collectively, right? In standing in Barabbas' place, in our place, in Israel's place, Jesus represents himself as Israel's true Messiah, right? But in Jesus, and again, right, we don't see the full power of this until a week from today. There is a new power at work, stronger than death and evil in our wrongs. It's love, right? Philippians chapter two, Christ humbles himself despite his innocence and he dies this terrible death on the cross. And in the end, he is exalted and we are exalted with him. We make this story our own by living out of the power of the cross. God has made the way, and that way just happens to be a cross. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.